0: So we live in a world of competing truth claims, right? So if you've uh, spent time on Netflix, you have documentaries that tell you what to eat, what not to eat. If you eat this, you will die. And if you don't eat this, then you're gonna live a healthier life. They also will tell you uh, that aliens are real. And any well-known conspiracy theory, you can find someone telling you that's absolutely 100% true if you dig deep enough in Netflix like I do. We live in a world where all different kind of competing truth claims are coming out, right? CNN and Fox News and Washington Post and Huffington Post and Wall Street Journal and New York Times. They are telling you what is true politically and what is true economically. Oprah is telling you what is true. Richard Dawkins is telling you that is 100% true that God does not exist. We are receiving so many different things. There's been this movement of spirituality and New Age mysticism that is telling you what is true about your mind and your body and your soul and how to find joy and centeredness. We are competing for truth in our culture, and we're receiving that time and time and time again. Have you ever been in a group of people, and you're just spending time together, and you're hanging out, and everything goes wrong? Something happens. And then everyone starts sharing what they believe is true in the moment. Has that ever happened to you? Right, when I was in college, I was camping uh, with a group of friends, which I don't do often because I'm not good at camping. And I don't know if you're good at camping. I'm horrible at it. I think I've told you this before. I've never made it more than one night uh, because I eat all the food. But we were having a great time. A group of friends were going. We're camping. We're out there in the woods in southern Georgia in the wilderness and cooking on the fire and doing things that campers do. And I felt like you know a real man And then we went out, we're like, what are we gonna do as we're getting over to go to sleep? And we said, listen, we are in the middle of nowhere, there's no artificial light, so we wanna go look at the stars. So we walked out to the canyon's edge and we're sitting down and we're looking up at the stars and they're just painted across the sky and some people are laying down, some people are leaning on trees and just having a great time. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one of my friends starts screaming at the top of his lungs and punching himself in the face. And I thought, is this what demon possession looks like? I was like, I've never seen it, here it is, look at it go. Or like, then then my mind went to like, he's having a mental break, like something happened. He snapped, he's going insane. And we're like, what's wrong, what's wrong? And then he starts screaming, ants, ants, ants. And I'm like, 100% mental break, like what is going on? And we're trying to figure out what's happening. Everyone's rallying around him and he's like, ants are in my head. And we finally just, you know, kind of deciphered in the moment as he's going nuts, like he was laying down on the ground and ants had crawled in his ear and they were inside of his brain. And he was like going, I don't know how the channels work. There's a lot of medical people here. I don't know if the brain through the ear, but they felt like they were in there. So they went in and he's freaking out. And so what happens is every one of us starts sharing what we think is the right answer, right? Here's what's true. Someone's like, dig your fingers in your ears. And so he's like, Whoosh. someone's like, punch yourself in the face. And he's like, bam, bam. Then so, another guy's like, plug your nose and blow and you can shoot him out. So he's like this. And then one of my friends goes, get the fire. And he was like, no, no, that don't get the fire. You could burn his face off. And then one of my friends said, hold him down. Let's drown him. So we held him down to the ground. He's freaking out. We take water and we start just dumping it in his ears and we're drowning the ants out and it worked. We drowned the ants. I don't know how it worked, but it worked. But see, everything in that moment broke down, and all of us thought we knew what was right. We thought we knew the answer, we had the truth. I mean, one of my friends was about to light his head on fire, right? It was none of us had the truth, except for one guy who somehow knew that we were supposed to drown the ants. And this is like the world that we live in, right? We are constantly being bombarded with so many different claims on what is true. And we're trying to figure out how in the world do we decipher them. And so there's been a movement culturally, which makes a lot of sense. And here's the movement. Listen, I can't really deal with and process all of these different claims and competing truth claims. So I am just going to follow after and discover my truth. Have you, have you maybe felt that or heard someone speak like that? Maybe you think that way. Like, right? I'm just going to follow after my truth because, and this makes sense, right? It's a defense mechanism in many ways, because you're like, I don't want to deal with processing all of these things. I don't want to deal with upsetting somebody that has a different truth claim and believes something different than me. So I'm just going to kind of call it my truth and follow after that. But if we're honest, right, when we're intellectually honest, we, we know that just labeling something as truth doesn't actually make it truth. And Following after my truth isn't really following after truth, it's following after preferences, right? It's following after things that you prefer, that you think are good, that you think will be profitable, and some of them may be good, and some of them may be true, and some of them may be right and profitable for you, but some of them may be lies. Some of them may be foolish, and they may be dangerous, and then what happens when you're following after your truth, right, is that when you recognize the things that are lies, then you just adjust a little bit. you keep adjusting and adjusting and adjusting. See, there's this whole thought process that our culture puts out there that you just need to figure out what is good for you and follow after your truth. But when you kind of break it down, you realize it doesn't work. Truth can't be relative. It can't. Because even if you say that you believe that truth is relative, you're making an absolute truth claim. So what happens when we recognize that, that we can't even make statements without making a claim that is an absolute truth claim, it boils down to this. We know that there is truth out there that can't be manipulated, that can't be reinterpreted in many different ways. It is true, and it's not changing. And we know this because all of us right now, if we did an exercise and I said, jump up in the air the same thing is going to happen to every single one of us. We are going to fall back down to the ground because we live on earth and we have gravity. Even if you say, listen, I don't believe in gravity. Like, that doesn't work. Like, you're going to fall. It doesn't matter if you don't believe it. You are going to fall. It's 100% true. So the, the question for us really in, in a cultural moment like ours is, how do I determine what is actually true? And how do I sort through all of these different claims that are being made to me about what is true? How do I sort through the competing truth claims? I'm gonna take us back to a little bit over 2,000 years ago where a very famous man named Plato spoke about an allegory. It's called the allegory of the cave. Raise your hand if you've heard this allegory before. Some of you, some of you are like, I don't wanna show that I'm too much of a nerd. You know, like, just a little bit. Maybe you studied it in school. Maybe you've heard it explained before. But here's what the allegory is, very simply. He says, imagine there are prisoners that are chained up in a cave, okay? They're not able to look behind them. They're staring at the wall of the cave, and that's all they can see. But behind them is the mouth of the cave. And the light is peering in from the mouth of the cave, and it's reflecting shadows. So all that they're able to see in life are these shadows. So a dog walks by. They can't see the dog, but they can see the shadow of the dog. A human walks by, they can see the shadow of a human, a horse. Whatever walks by, they can only see the shadow of that thing. But for them, that is real, and that is true. That's reality. They don't know anything else. But then one day, one of the prisoners escapes. He gets out of his chains, and he turns around, and for the first time, he recognizes that he's in a cave, and there's a way out. And so he goes outside of the cave, and he goes into the light, and it's blinding. It's disorienting. He's never been in the light before. And he begins to kind of sort through that. And he's trying to process everything he's seeing. And he's trying to adjust to the light. And for the first time ever, he's seeing a real dog. And he's seeing a real horse and a real human. The real form of that thing and not the shadow. And now everything is changing for him. And he's realizing what he believed before was not true. It was just an imitation of a true thing. And ultimately, as he's kind of spending time in this world of truth... He is able to look at the sun, which is the ultimate source of truth because it gives light to everything and it reveals the beauty and the goodness of all things. So he's really excited. So he goes back into the cave and he goes to his friends who are still chained up and they're looking at the shadows. He says, listen, guys, this isn't real. This is a, it's a shadow. It's an imitation. It's a mimic of what is really true. If you will just let me, I will get you out of the chains. We'll go outside the cave. I'm going to show you what a real dog looks like. I'm going to show you truth. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And Plato says that they reject him. They call him foolish. They call him crazy. And they actually get violent with him because they think he's lost it. He says this is what our world is like our world is a world of shadows. We're only seeing a reflection, we're only seeing an imitation of something that is true. So we're not able to see things that are perfectly true and perfectly good, but Plato actually says that there is an outside world, there is another world where there is perfect truth and perfect goodness. And so what we see and experience here is a shadow of that world, and here's the goal of life. The goal of life is to recognize that we live in a world of shadows and to pursue truth, to pursue the ultimate good. He says really the goal is to pursue the sun. And the sun in this allegory is perfect goodness. The thing that gives beauty and, and, and reveals the true nature of all things. He said that is the goal of life. And Plato says here's how you do it. You do it through philosophy. Now listen, Plato was on something. Maybe you're catching that. And theologians and scholars and pastors and Christians have recognized this for a long time. And so did the apostles. They grew up knowing about Plato and his allegory of the cave. But here's what they said. You are never gonna discover truth and perfect goodness if you think that you're gonna get there through your mind, through philosophy, through reason, through logic. You're not gonna be able to get there. The way that you get there, the way that you pursue truth and goodness is through God's word, which is the only thing that we have that is perfectly true. Here's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us in our passage tonight in First in uh, Timothy 3. He says, all scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, what Paul is saying here is, listen, we may live in a world of shadows, but if you want to get outside the cave, if you want to get a look outside the cave and you want to start that journey, it happens here in Scripture. Because Scripture is breathed out by God. It is His word and it is profitable. It is profitable, it says, for all of these, for training and for reproof and for correction in what? In righteousness. What is righteousness? It's going to lead you to what is right, what is good, what is true. And this has been proven time and time again. This has been proven in your life. This has been proven in the lives of so many Christians and atheists and governments and businesses and cultures have taken truth from this book and they have applied it. Why? Because it's profitable. Because it's true. But here's the reality. This truth right here can be disorienting, right? It can be blinding. It can be really hard to process when you're dealing with all these competing truth claims in life, and then you begin to read this, and you begin to sort through it. It can be difficult. And so here's what we've done, right? We've said, listen, okay, maybe not all scripture is breathed out by God, but some of it is. Some of it is because it's obvious that some of it is profitable. Some of it is true. Some of it is wise. And What happens is, we begin to look at the pages of scripture, or we listen to sermons, or we read the Bible on our own, and we say, you know what? I'm going to just apply and believe the things that are easier for me to digest. The things that I think are profitable, the things that I think are good for me. And when we say that, and when we do that, what are we saying? We're saying, this right here is not the ultimate source of truth, And the ultimate source of goodness its not entirely breathed out by God. Some of it is. Really, the ultimate source of truth is my mind. Because my mind and my logic and my reasoning skills are supreme. There is nothing greater than them in the entire universe because I'm able to decide what is profitable and what is good and what is true. And here's the reality. Whether or not you're there right now, the reality is every single one of us has been there and every single one of us struggles with this. We struggle with saying, man, is all of this breathed out by God? Is all of this true? We struggle with it. It's our nature. This is the Adam and Eve cycle that we've been going through and human beings have been going through since the beginning. And here's the Adam and Eve cycle. God says, listen, I'm going to give you everything. You can enjoy perfectly life relationship with me relationship with each other everything is yours let me just tell you one thing don't eat of this tree it's not gonna be good for you don't eat of this tree there are consequences and the consequences is that you're gonna die everything else is yours don't eat of this tree and out you're like cool this is great i mean that just one thing but then what happens is they get in a conversation a conversation with satan himself who is the father of lies and that's what he looks to do is deceive and he says listen come on Did God really say not to eat of this tree? Maybe God's trying to keep you from something that's even better. Maybe it really is good. Maybe it's gonna make you all wise and all-knowing. It's gonna give you all these things you're missing out on. And what do Adam and Eve do? They say, you know what? Maybe that's right. Maybe it is gonna be good and profitable. And they make their mind and their logic and their reasoning supreme over what God says in his word. And it says this, it says that when they saw that it was good, right, they thought that. To the taste, and what was good for them, they partake of it. And when they, pour, when they took of the fruit and when they ate of it, they reap the consequences of it. This is what we all do. This is the cycle that we all go through, right? We exchange the truth of God for a lie. This is Romans 1. This is the the struggle of human beings is that we've heard and we've read and we see that God tells us that this is his word. It's all breathed out by God. It is true. It is good. It is right. And there is nothing above it. And we say, I don't know about that. What about this? What about that idea? What about this thought? and we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we repeat this cycle time and time again, and it was no different during the time of the Reformation. We've been speaking about, as we started our little mini-series last week, about 500 years ago, this great movement happened, the Reformation. And during the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s was saying this, listen, Scripture is an authority of truth, but there are other authorities of truth, tradition, the clergy, the pope, And what happened was when you elevate anything else and put it aside next to scripture and you say these things are also on the same level in regards to truth and and goodness and profit for your life, all of these really dangerous rituals and rules and ideas came forth. And we spoke about that last week when we said that the, the whole idea of indulgences and paying for the removal of punishment for your sin and penance and all these different things. And Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and all these other Christian reformers, Protestant reformers said, listen, no. It is one thing and it is one thing alone and that's scripture. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Martin Luther, when he's asked to recant all of his teachings in in 1521, he really gives a great summary of what the Protestant Reformation believed and felt about scripture. Here's what he says. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it's well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. So even my mind, my logic, my reasoning, it is submitted to God's word. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience, which is submitted to God's word. May God help me. See, they said that scripture alone was the thing that they were going to submit their conscience and their logic and their reasoning and their thoughts to. Here's a common response. Maybe you're feeling this. Maybe you're sorting through this right now. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying, Carter. But the Bible does not contain passages and verses that apply to every aspect of my life. It doesn't apply to every different relationship situation. doesn't apply to every different job situation. I mean, there are things that it doesn't really address much, like science. How can you say Scripture alone when it doesn't cover every aspect where I need to really determine what is true and what is good and what is right? So a common misconception of sola scriptura is this, that sola scriptura does not mean scripture only. It means that scripture is the final authority. It is the final authority. It is not the only source of truth. There are other sources of truth, logic for sure, reason, common sense, tradition, experience. These are, this is God's common grace to us. He's given you a mind. He's given us great traditions and experience and there's different sources of truth. And the Reformation has proved this out. They didn't believe that scripture was the only, but yet it was the final because the Reformation gave rise to great innovation in medicine and in science and in business and astronomy and government. So sola scriptura means that this is the final authority and word of truth, not the only, but here's what it does mean. It is the only infallible word of truth. Meaning, this is the only truth that is incapable of failing. It's the only truth that cannot fail. See, we may find and discover truth through logic and reason, through experience and tradition, but those things are capable of failing, right? For instance, science declared that it was true that the world was flat. And we know that's not true, though some people are still holding on to the idea that the world is flat. But it's not, it's not flat, it's round. But science thought that it is flat and they declared with truth that this is flat, but it's not. When I was a child, I thought Brussels sprouts were gross. And then I realized a little butter, some garlic and salt and pepper, voila, delicious. Right, we may discover truth and we may find wisdom in other places, but they are capable of failing. There is only one place that we can discover and find truth that is incapable of failing, and that is in God's word. And so when we're presented with all these competing truth claims and when we're walking through life, the question is, is God's word the root and the final authority of truth in your life? Are you searching it out? Are you asking questions of it? Are you looking into it as you're sorting through all the questions that you're dealing with in relationships and in business? And in life in general, are you coming to this at all and, and asking questions of it? Because it is incapable of failing. And it will apply to much more than you think it will. Look at the second half of Timothy 3, 17. It says this, that the man of God, that the script, all scripture is profitable. Why? That the man or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So here's a question. Is there anything, is there any good work that this does not apply to? No. It applies to every good work. It is profitable for every good work and it is incapable of failing and this is the doctrine of sola scriptura. right? You may discover truth and wisdom in other areas but God's word is the final authority. It is the only place that you can really trust what it says. Here's how you know if you're living out the doctrine of sola scriptura. When culture presents you a truth claim, or your friends, or your mind, or Netflix, and it says X, and then scripture says not X, which one do you follow? That's a question to ask. When anything competes with Scripture in its claim on truth, which one am I following? Because if you are following after and running after, as a reformers set forth five hundred years ago to reclaim the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Christian faith, is that believers and Christians are to submit their mind, the opinions and thoughts of others, cultural values, Netflix documentaries. Facebook posts, whatever, to submit it to Scripture because it is the only source of truth that is incapable of failing, and it is the final authority in your life. I would be uh, remiss if I didn't close without discussing really the heart of Sola Scriptura. See, Sola Scriptura means that Scripture alone is the final and infallible word of truth, is incapable of error as well as inerrant in your life, and it is the standard for by which how you should live and the decisions that you should make. It should be the bedrock that you compete, you bring every other truth claim against. But here's the heart of sola scriptura. It is the final and it is the only source of truth for salvation. See, in this book, we read and we understand a glimpse so we can not understand in full God's nature and his character. We understand our sin and the problem that that brings. As we try to mix imperfection and perfection with the Holy God, we read about God's rescue mission, and his love for us as he sent Jesus to live a life that we couldn't, which was a perfect life, and to die in our place and to take our debt and our sin upon his shoulders as he sacrificed his life on the cross and he's buried in the ground. And three days later, he comes forth victorious as we just recited in the Apostles' Creed. And that anyone who believes in faith, as we said last week, in faith alone we are invited into a relationship with God that we get to enjoy the fruit and the blessing of that now and for eternity, that that is here and only here. Jesus himself says this. He says, I am the way and the what? Truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The way to the Father, the way to God, the way to eternal life is only found in Scripture as you come to see Jesus Christ himself, who we know about and who we read about here In this word, St. Irenaeus, all the way back in the 2nd century A.D., here's what he said. We have known the method of our salvation by no other means than by those whom the gospel came to us, which the gospel they truly preach, but afterwards, by the will of God, they delivered to us in the scriptures to be for the future and foundation and pillar of our faith. See, everything we need to know and all we need to know is found in here for salvation. This is the final and the only source of truth for how we might be reconnected with God, how we might find and know and be assured that we are going to be with him in eternity through Jesus Christ. And this right here, this book, this is the backbone of what we do here every single Sunday. Every song that we sing is influenced by Scripture. Coming to the table and giving of our tithes and our offerings is encouraged and commanded by Scripture. Spending time together and praying for each other and praying together as a church is encouraged and supported by Scripture. Gathering together and saying that we're going to seek to do life together as a community, as in a family, and we're not supposed to live life alone is commanded by Scripture, and listening even right now is not applying Carter's words to your to your life, is applying Scripture to your life, is the backbone of every worship service, and the Holy Spirit is promised. He is alive and he's active here. And here's what he does. He applies scripture to your mind and to your heart. He reminds you of scripture. It says that the Holy Spirit, wrote, it, he illuminates and he makes known the deep things of God. The words that are here that are breathed out by God, he applies to your life and to your mind. Martin Luther, he said this. I love this quote. He says, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. See, the reason that we are here today and the reason that the Reformation took hold and was ignited in the lives of so many people to reclaim the heart of the gospel and the truth of the Christian faith is not because Martin Luther was so persuasive and so smart. I mean, God had given him many gifts and he used him. But he's telling you, the reason is, is because the word of God is truth, and it will challenge, and it will exhort, and it will convict, and it will transform people's lives. The word of God did everything. I did nothing. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is alive and it's active. It penetrates your soul and your mind and your heart. See, this is not full of dead words and outdated ideas and values. This is the most powerful thing that we have. It is God's word breathed out to us that is profitable for all things and it's accessible and open to anyone to find its beauty. You don't have to have a seminary education. You don't have to have been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years. You don't have to be really well read and really good at literature. It is available and open to you to discover its beauty and its truth. And it only requires two things. And the first thing is this, that you submit to it. Right? You have to ask yourself that question. Am I willing to and am I going to, by God's grace, to submit my mind and reason and traditions of others and my friends' opinions and cultural values to this book? Is this really going to be the final authority in my life? Is this really going to be the root of my conscience? Is this going to be the thing that guides me? And if you answer yes to that, if you believe that, and you say, yes, that's true, that's true of me, I'm really seeking after that. I may exchange the truth of God for a lie at times because we all do, it's a struggle, but listen, that is the two I want to be, it's how I want to live. Then you should be grateful because that's God's grace to you, that's sola gratia, grace alone. It's not because you're really smart or because you're more holy than other people that you've come to follow scripture alone as the final authority in your life, it's because God has been gracious to you to open up and to enlighten your mind, to to understand that, wow, this is a look outside the cave. This is truth, and it is incapable of failing. So be grateful, and if you're here and you're still wrestling through that and you're like, I don't know, you know, Maybe some of it, but I'm not sure about all of it, Carter. Then I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to do something. Try it. Search it out. Doubt it. Critique it. Look through it because truth will stand up to every test. And when you do that, you will come to find, and I'm praying even now that God's grace and his Holy Spirit will illuminate to you that, wow, this is actually God's word that is incapable of failing. So the first thing to do, to live out sola scriptura, is to submit to it. And the second thing to do is to consume it. To consume it. An English reformer, Thomas Cranmer, said this. He said, unto a Christian there could be nothing either more necessary or profitable than knowledge of Holy Scripture. For as much as in it is contained God's true word, setting forth his glory and also man's duty... And as drink is pleasant to them that be dry and meat to them that be hungry, so is reading and hearing and searching and studying of Holy Scripture to them that be desirous to know God or themselves and to do his will. So you cannot experience the beauty and power of God's word if you're not consuming it. You have to read it and hear it and study it and search it. It's like someone saying to you this, listen, um, I'm not really into home-cooked meals. I don't get it. I, I, frozen food is perfect for me, right? And you may sit there and say, okay, I understand, I've, you know, I've done that, I do frozen food, but have you ever had a home-cooked meal? I've had it a couple times, but you know, I don't really think it's worth all the mess, and I just don't really think it tastes, pretty much tastes the same, right? I mean, frozen fish sticks, make the fish sticks, it tastes pretty much the same. Here's what you're gonna do. If you make food at home, you're gonna say, okay, come over to my house, You bring your frozen fish sticks. I'm going to make you some fish, and you're going to tell me which one tastes better. And then I'm going to teach you how to actually cook where you don't have to be so intimidated that you're going to mess the whole kitchen up. And let me explain. Home-cooked meals, I'm sorry, are better for you. They taste better. They're just all around better. You may think that your truth claim that frozen food is the same. It's a lie. That's not true. See, so often we look at God's Word and we say, you know what? Like, I have, hmm. I don't really think this is like, profitable for me. I don't really, I mean, we, I hear about it, maybe I've heard sermons, I've, I've heard friends talk about it, but I don't really see the beauty and the transformational power in it. And so I'm just, I'm just gonna kinda go back to my microwavable truth, the truth that I read online, the truth that I read on social media, the truth that my friends tell me, the truth that I'm determining by my logic, my reason is right and good. I'm just gonna go to that, it's easier. That doesn't mean that that thought process is true. This is in fact God's word and it's infallible. And if you consume it and if you spend time with it, you will come to see its beauty and its power. It's the same with cooking. You can't just go to cooking and say, I'm gonna give cooking a shot. And then you go and you start cooking and you're like, I am not a professional chef after the first time. So I'm gonna give up cooking. It doesn't work like that, right? In order to be a good cook, you have to spend time cooking. You have to cook often. You have to do it every single night, and then what happens over time? You realize which spices go together. You realize how long to cook the chicken. Eventually, you don't even need recipes. And in time, the food gets better. It becomes easier. There's less of a mess. You can like cook a chicken and, and clean a dish, and you, know, you become like you have like eight arms, right? Over time, it becomes much easier to do. But if you go to it the first time with expectations like, I'm going to give it a shot once, maybe a week. And if I'm not a professional chef by then, I'm giving it up. We bring that same mentality here, right? Like, okay, I'm going to read it. I'm going to give it a week. And if my whole life isn't transformed, then it's not for me. You have to spend time with it. You have to consume it and search it and study it and ask questions of it. And when you do, you will find its beauty You will find truth. It will apply to your life and it will transform your life. It's an incredible thing. It's an incredible gift that has been given to us. And I want to leave you with uh, two practical steps and I want to encourage you to do this. When you came in, you may have received a personal worship guide. You have that. Some of you guys have that. If not, there should be some in the back when you leave. This is a very clear and simple guide to reading God's word on your own because we need to all be doing it individually. So my challenge to you is this week, take 15 minutes. Don't, you don't have to find an hour. Take 15 minutes in the morning, at night, on your lunch break, whatever time works for you. Take 15 minutes and spend time in God's word. You can follow that outline. You can read through it. You can ask those questions. I like to journal in a moleskin. You can use your phone. You can do whatever's easiest for you. Take 15 minutes and spend time in God's word every single day. Do it for a week, and then do it for another week, and do it for another week, and you're going to find that it is true and profitable for every aspect of your life, and you will see its beauty. But you got to consume it. And then my second encouragement and challenge to you is join a community group. A lot of you have been coming here for a long time, and maybe you haven't joined a community group yet. Maybe it's difficult. I understand. But I want to encourage you and challenge you to join a community group. We don't just do them to say that we do them. Because listen, we all struggle with exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And we struggle with really understanding and seeing the truth of God's word. And that's why we need each other. And that's what we do in community group. You come together and you ask questions. You're free to doubt. You're free to explore. And you're going to come to find that God's word is going to apply to your life. And you're going to see it as true and unfailing. But you're also going to see how it's transforming other people's lives. So I want to encourage you to do that. You can find out how to do that in your worship program under the announcement section. So my prayer is this, that as we as a church family seek to live out Sola Scriptura by submitting to it, by consuming it, by spending time in it individually and together in community, that these words would be true of us. Thomas Kramer said this as well. He says, these books contained in here, therefore ought to be much in our hands, in our eyes, in our ears, in our mouths, but most of all in our hearts. Let's pray.